This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman. This is the annual London FinTech New Year Special, in which I take a broad view of the context within which fintech is occurring. The broadest societal context right now is the huge changes that are being driven by digital technology as a whole. This 2023 newer special forms the fifth in a series of five about how technology is changing us directly and indirectly by empowering tyrants. It is by far the most insanely ambitious, yet empowering and positive of all, suggesting that we use the current insanity as a spur in our sides, to seek to flee Plato's cave, escape the matrix, and speed up our path to awakening in search of love, light, and healing. Sound like a cool topic? A worthy goal to you? We'll have five chapters. Metapolitical awakening, psychological awakening, the wasteland and the grail, existential awakening, and a magical new world. Chapter one, metapolitical awakening. Let's briefly review the story so far. Let's consider three levels of awakening, metapolitical, psychological, and existential. The previous four episodes in this special series covered metapolitical awakening, awakening from the mainstream narrative and acknowledging tech's role in creating fertile ground for sociopaths, criminals, and idiots to run amok and act as masters of the people, not their servants. We will briefly recap the story so far the first in the series of five was the super prescient 2019 New Year special. Released over a year before the COVID tyranny, it was prophetically entitled, Is FS and Tech Ushering in Orwellian Tyranny Rather Than Freeing the People? Well, that one is stated extremely well, and I think the answer to that question is a clear yes, given that the big tech giants increasingly act as public censors, best buddies of the deep state, the modern equivalent of Nazi book burning, Big FS firms and fintechs such as Mastercard, PayPal, Patreon, Dplatform, unpersoned people include to block, or in the case of PayPal, simply take some of their income in the name of holding people to their political, moral, ethical, so-called standards. In January 2020, we were experiencing a relaxing lull and the New Year special was focused on the much closer to home decade in fintech. January 2021's New Year special came after near global house arrest had been created as a thing and was the second in the series, and moved on from the technological road to serfdom, to serfdom itself. It was a clear start of what one might call in the simplest of terms, the outbreak of a war on the people, entitled The Elites, Governance and Cultural Revolutions, Key Insights from Spengler, Nietzsche and Lash. Briefly, Spengler's The Decline of the West, written a century ago, saw civilizations as organic forms that rise and fall. Without a doubt, the centuries-long rise of Europe and European ways has utterly changed the whole world. In the same way, the decline, in absolute or relative terms, will be the major factor over the coming century, and certainly has been in 2022, not least regards an insane and incompetent US government shooting themselves in the foot and provoking a damaging to them de-dollarisation and an increase in a multipolar world. In the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche accurately foresaw the decline of Christianity would inevitably unravel European society with problematic consequences. 
Finally, in that episode, I covered an underrated and not so widely known 20th century thinker, American Christopher Lash, who wrote on many topics, but I focus on two of his books in which he outlined problematic major cultural trends in America, the rise of emotionalism and elitism, which so dominate current discourse on all matters. On elitism, I could equally have referred to Thomas Sowell's Vision of the Anointed, also coming true in spades right now. The third in the series was a special episode, LFP 200, which reverted to focusing on tech and dived into the true and little understood deep nature of technology per se, entitled The Philosophy of Technology and Technique and Their Existential Impact on People, Society and Civilization with Oswald Spengler and Jacques Ellul. Briefly to recap, technology is not, as commonly portrayed, value neutral. You know the kind of a knife can kill, but in the hands of a surgeon it can cure angle. Firstly, technology, by its very nature, always ends up putting greater power in the hands of a few who inevitably, throughout history, have, until eventually somewhat restrained by society, used it for personal gain and greed and power over their fellow man. Secondly, technology has always moved power away from local communities to more distant folk. Globalism is simply the reductio ad absurdum of this process. Thirdly, technology and its parent, technique, condition man to being, to existing in a particularly diminished way. Put simply, the more man is surrounded by technology and technique, brackets thinks regulations and laws, the more robotic he ends up behaving, being, thinking and feeling, and the less, poetically put, he can be fully human and live in a world of values other than rational efficiency. Technique and technology thus naturally lead us into a world well described by Max Weber as a polar night of icy darkness, an iron cage of disenchantment, bureaucratization and control, a world ripe to be plucked by tyrants, aka the cultural and governance revolution of the elite which we are witnessing now. This archetypal motif was well portrayed in Star Wars 1, where the rule by bureaucrats was perfectly set up to be controlled by Palpatine. The fourth in the series, about the crises of 21st century life and societies was 2022's How the World is Governed, an exploration of the nature of globalism, the ne plus ultra issue of our time. This dived into the long planned origins of globalism and its nature. Agenda 21, in its current version Agenda 2030, and climate change as the thing were all agreed by the UN and the Club of Rome respectively way back in the 1990s. As per not just Spengler, but also as per the first historiographer Ibn Khaldun, who wrote in 1377 in his Mukaddima, successful societies need an asabiyah, a group feeling, a centripetal principle. What happens when this asabiyah, when this centripetal force that binds society disappears? Well, they have an answer for that, top-down tyranny. The top-down governance of globalism is embedded and exemplified by the so-called global public-private partnership, in which, of course, the public get no say whatsoever. Policy flows down a five-layer organogram from policy creators right at the top, BIS, WEF, CFR et al., through policy distributors, IMF, World Bank, WHO, Global Medicacos et al., through governments, labelled policy enforcers, through policy propagandists, corporate, state and social media, to, at the bottom, you, me and Joe Sixpack, living a near-feudalised life. Scholarship candidates may spot that this organogram breaks roughly every state governance rules around the world. At some deep archetypal level, those at the reins of power seem possessed by Freud's death drive, misanthropy, 
millenarian fantasies of doom and gloom, of manager scourge to Gaia, and elite desires of population reduction, and actualities of aggressive population replacement, the Kalurgy plan to make it easier to rule the roost, and a total lack of anything like a commensurate increase in infrastructure with population increase. Minor matters, you know, like houses, hospitals, doctors, roads, reservoirs, those kind of things. All this ensures that most everyone will assume their newly defined neo-feudal place on the bottom rung of the two-tier Hunger Games model. Summing up the metapolitical challenge in one practical question, this would be how best to avoid living in countries that are pressing on the whole way right to the very end of Hayek's road to serfdom that he correctly foresaw and was effectively cancelled by his profession for in 1944. It is noteworthy to recall that Churchill, who was virtually a lone voice in the wind in warning of the terrible dangers approaching in the 1930s, who created the phrase and concept of the Iron Curtain across Europe, used his first election broadcast in 1945 to talk of the dangers of central planning and raised the idea that it would, in the end, require the powers of a Gestapo to put the ideal of a planned society into practice. Attlee mocked that idea and promised that Nanny would indeed look after everyone from cradle to grave, and Julie got voted in. Well, fast forward not that long, all of this has happened within the lifetime of my parents, and Nanny is smothering its charges, injecting them with dangerous substances, poisoning their minds with endless gaslighting. In passing, is it just me that has noticed that the current religion and diet respectively are called die and sad, diversity, inclusion, equity, and standard American diet. Nanny is presenting as lifestyle choices what until very recently was seen as mental illness. Nanny oversees rising crime and is filling the house with newcomers, all of whom will suffer when the lights go out. Which is also planning, of course. I could go on, but let's save us all. Pick your own favourite symptoms, for Nanny having spent far too long at the Ouija board and ending up possessed by demons. As so often, nature produces an antidote next to a poison. If the first four episodes in the series were about the Great Reset, which would have been unthinkable pre-mobile and personal computer technologies, house arrest almost everyone in the 1970s and the country would have ground to halt within a week, then this fifth episode is about the Great Awakening. This phrase has been used to denote many levels of awakening, in my terms, metapolitical, psychological and existential slash spiritual. Alexander Dugin's publishers joined the Great Awakening versus the Great Reset bandwagon by using it for the title of a very short 2021 work by the Russian scourge of Western liberalism slash modernity slash hyper-individualism, where the collective is something to be actively destroyed and where nothing is sacred. I think in passing, on the sacred point, Dugin perhaps misses out the sacred nature of consumption to all too many. Malls are the new cathedrals of the culture, a place of worship to be ever returned to, as one never actually reaches the apotheosis of owning it all. And in terms of worship, in passing, I was much taken this year by orthodox icon carver Jonathan Pajot's comment on his Symbolic World YouTube channel that it is impossible not to worship. To worship is to orientate oneself towards something, and we all orientate ourselves towards something, whether it be sex, drugs and rock and roll, or, as our guests on the show, towards creating ex nihilo extraordinary firms. One sentence from an Amazon review lays out Dugan's thesis simply, and it is one that is of great relevance to the arising multipolar world. It seems to summarise the growth in power of civilization states. China, Russia and Saudi, for example, all have a clear idea of what they are and what they stand for. The reviewer's sentence. History is, he says, at one of its major turning points, where humanity must now choose between a great reset 
a nightmare post-humanist world as advocated by the Western liberal elite, or else a great awakening where the peoples of the world who want to preserve their culture, traditions and humanity will take back power from them. Chapter 2. Psychological Awakening Leaving prior examinations of metapolitical awakening behind us, let's turn now to the second of the awakenings, psychological. I once had a curious thought slash vision in Berkeley Square. Watching folks walking by, I saw them, not as I usually saw them, as people, you know, a head, a couple of arms, a couple of legs and a torso looking around and being in the world, but as having goldfish bowls on their heads and watching a screen inside those bowls which they mistook as the world without even realising they were doing so. Stop them and ask them and they would all say they were in Berkeley Square and who could disagree? However, one might actually be walking down the square feeling angry with a colleague and plotting revenge. Another might be experiencing their heart leaping when they think of their lover and so forth. They are living in different worlds, worlds qua experience. The Buddha said, with our thoughts we make our world. To which the immediate Western thought, with his obsession with the physical, would be, seriously, you mean I'm creating Mount Everest? But this is to miss the point. When the Buddha, in his culture, talked about worlds, he was talking about individuals lived, experienced worlds. Whether the actual world, as a physical object, is real or some virtual simulation is impossible to prove one way or another. Indeed, dive down deep enough into that one and you will just meet the limitation of ape descendants' concepts of real or virtual. A former teacher of mine, when asked at a seminar whether Green Tara, a meditation object in Tibetan Buddhism, is real, replied saying, she knows she is not real. Back to simpler ground, there is little anyone can do to prove, for example, that we are not living in the matrix. Either way, we do not, as Kant said, ever experience the noumena, the thing in itself, but only our phenomenal reactions to it. After all, matter is just quantum fields, but the phenomenal experience of stubbing your toe is definitely not one of the collapse of wave functions and Schrodinger's equations. But back to the goldfish bowls on our heads, or rather the audio channel. I recall quite some time ago in the city, long enough ago that everyone still wore ties, having a lunch with a former colleague after I'd returned from a 10-day meditation retreat. He asked if it had been interesting. I replied, not really, as my experience of meditation retreats is inevitably mindfulness of my knees hurting sitting on the floor and the boredom of staring at the greyness behind my eyes. Plenty of folks had way more interesting visions, although how many of them were slipping into the hypnagogic state between waking and sleep, I don't know. I certainly don't think the lady who excitedly described swimming with multicoloured fish was entirely following the instructions of an exercise to scan the whole body with the mind. Anyway, I happened to mention to my buddy the fact that I realised I could stop thinking if I wanted to, which is a great relief in passing when all you've had playing in your goldfish bowl is radio mic for decades and some annoyingly short snippets of songs on auto-repeat. Gosh, he said, that's scary. Thank God it never happened to me. I'd be worried that I'd never start thinking again. Not a general problem, of course. Most folks go through life with a constant commentary happening in parallel, a kind of subtitles below the opera in the bowl. Anyway, ever since Barclay Square, it has been deeply, as opposed to merely intellectually, clear to me that whilst in the same physical environment we are experiencing life very differently. Standing by a river on a winter's morn recently, Bridget and I shared what we were seeing, feeling, tuning into. We might as well have been in entirely different places, so non-overlapping were our experiences. One reason for this, of course, is that the physical world alone is such high bandwidth. An artist can spend hours looking at a landscape and still see things that he hasn't yet painted. Inputting physical reality, even just through the eyes, is a vastly higher data rate than we can consciously process, let alone all the numerous senses.
And that's just for starters. Once you're showing a number of people a more emotive picture, be it of a face mask, say, or Ukraine, or Trump, or roughly most things right now, you can be pretty sure that inside their goldfish bowls, inside their heads, they are watching radically different movies, having radically different thoughts, and experiencing very different emotions. As Spengler wrote, there cannot be independent media, as media is always controlled by money power. And Spengler was writing before Bernays created a whole industry, PR not coincidentally being the first two letters of propaganda. And before Goebbels drove home is simplify and repeat as the ne plus ultra of propagandizing. The modern globalists, safe and effective, and Putin bad man, are homages to Nazi propaganda methods. Fast forward to the 21st century, and the government has so-called nudge units to ensure that the people think and act as their government desires. And the GPPP explicitly situates media, as I said, in the role of propagandists. Is it any wonder that most people succumb to programming when the vast resources of the state and megacos devote themselves to hypnotising them and colonising their minds? As Jacques Ellul wrote after the war, propaganda must not concern itself with what is best in man, the highest goals humanity sets for itself, its noblest and most precious feelings. Propaganda does not aim to elevate man, but to make him serve. It must therefore utilise the most common feelings, the most widespread ideas, the crudest patterns, and in so doing, place itself on a very low level with regard to what it wants man to do and to what end. Hate, hunger and pride make better levers of propaganda than do love or impartiality. The propagandists are good at their job. Conventional wisdom is regarded as society's consensual truth, but conventional wisdom is generally something bought and paid for by someone with a vested interest. Daskalos, covered in a series of books about the Magos of Stravlos, was perhaps the most impressive Christian mystic and certainly healer of the last quarter of the 20th century. A quote of his is apposite, and as one of the greatest of modern masters of mind and reality he should know. He said, The normal state of consciousness is a semi-hypnotised, mechanical state of existence, the attention on outward things and oblivious to the inner reality of oneself. Which certainly sounds like me at my computer on a Monday morning. Back to goldfish bowls once more. If you could see the movie inside one of those bowls, if you could hear the soundtrack, if you could feel the feelings, we might wonder how and why that particular movie had come about. Would the movie have been the same if that baby had at birth been whisked away and brought up in a very different time and place? Of course not. Whilst a person is not a tabula rasa, a blank slate at birth, they are for sure written all over by parents, by the society they are brought up in, by religious leaders, by teachers, by friends, by politicians, by media like a palimpsest. Go to a football match and consider what would have happened if the two rival supporters' factions had been switched at birth. People are possessed by ideologies, people are possessed by narratives, by views, by opinions, by words. The proclivity to take sides, to opt for certainty, to worship, in Jonathan Pajot's terms, or to be possessed by positions, is only made worse in times of fear, where people cling to positions as if cling will somehow save them from drowning. Either or seems deeply reassuring to some people. When it comes to viruses, there are camps that cling to, it's all a virus and other camps that cling to viruses don't exist, it's all terrain theory. Or people cling to it's all an evil new world order, or it's all well-meaning incompetence, or it's just the unpredictable mechanics of a complex system. But why in this case can't all three be correct in different amounts? Over time, thoughts, ideas, narratives harden like compressed leaves into identity, first burnable coal and eventually into a nigh-on indestructible diamond. Chinese saying, the man takes a drink, 
the drink takes a drink, the drink takes the man, exemplifies this process of leaves, coal, diamond. Over time, an activity voluntarily and sporadically undertaken develops its own momentum, its own kind of inner gravity as it were, before becoming a thing which then ends up possessing the person. An ardent football supporter definitely does not just support Chelsea, he is a Chelsea supporter. For example, people on the left, in old money, definitely have the left as an identity, and filter bubbles long preceding the internet not only cling to that identity, but reject consuming material that might threaten it. Back to Hayek, I can think of one or two who long after his death considered him as a sort of antichrist with his warning against an eternally beneficent nanny. At a subtle level, well below narratives per se, given our noun-centric language, we are seduced into reification. As I've mentioned before, there's no such thing as a relationship, there is only relating, a process you could chart over time. Western metaphysics has been centred on God, but Native American nations with verb-centric languages talk about the great mysterying, and for sure, we can all agree that on the most fundamental level, there is great mysterying going on. After all, what is existence in the first place? We don't know and it keeps changing. <laughs> it's a great mystery. -ing. The Tao is similar. One can't name it, one can't know it. It's ever-changing and flowing, the deepest noumenal level of beingness, as it were. But that's all highfalutin. In terms of reification, even if we take a concrete example, or perhaps a tarmac example, let's consider a racetrack. You might think a racetrack is a racetrack, but that's way too high level, way too abstract, and is definitely not the lived experience of racers who see it changing and evolving over a race weekend. The world is full of folks decrying capitalism, which will be down to the not entirely unskewed education systems, but what the hell is that? If, in this false choice syndrome, socialism means state centralism, than every system ever that wasn't has been, quotes, capitalist. But that's a ludicrously insane level of abstraction into thingness. It tells one nothing about the nature of money in an economic system, about the nature of business liability, limited or unlimited, about the narrowness or breadth of what a business can do, about regulation, about interaction with the state, etc, etc, etc. Anyway, enough examples. I merely mention these various levels to demonstrate that we're all way more hypnotised than birth than we might care to imagine even down to the very subtle level of speaking noun-centric languages. In passing, by the way, techies will re recognise the procedure versus process distinction here. We are, at all levels, intracellular to relating to friends of the party, processes not procedures, activities not things. The corollary of the almost infinitely subtle hypnotising process that we have been through is that it is roughly impossible to unpick every level and get back to, as it were, a simple, unfilled, unconceptualized awareness, your original unwritten upon slate, by a series of linear logical steps. This is why existential awareness or spiritual awakening around the world has always depended upon radically different technologies of shifting consciousness to, as it were, approach things not by a logical, linear, bottom-up, stalagmite-type perspective, but to leap across the, the gap from being a stalagmite growing up to a stalactite growing down. Or, in another sense, to leap across the corpus callosum in the McGill Christian terms from a left-brained, know-it-all, finite, fixed experiencing of things to a more unknowing, unknowable sense of flow and unpin-down ability. There are multiple techniques working on ourselves, and none of us can even know a mere fraction. But at a psychological level, let's sketch out a model for tech folk of what we are. Let's start at ground zero and consider the human as having inputs and outputs. 
an internal state and being a set of algorithms. Can't get more Turing machine-y than that. And for those folks amongst you who didn't do computer science, a Turing machine is the earliest and most basic model of a computer. A baby is born, programmed with an initial rule set, and neural nets automatically develop algorithms for staying alive, whether simple physical algorithms like locomotion or avoiding fire, or pleasing parents so you keep being fed and please them enough to avoid excess criticism and so forth. Later, the nets create algorithms for dealing with socialization and then authority figures such as teachers and rules and then dating and mating and then career and so forth and so forth and so forth. The cool thing about the human being is that we have self-awareness. Not that much at the stage in the evolution, although I believe it is increasing, and some of us have more than others. Self-awareness is however tiny compared to our vastly larger subconscious mind, which runs almost the entire show. Next to no animals have, as far as we know, very much self-consciousness, yet they all manage to live their whole lives out perfectly well without it. There is a vast unseen intelligence within us, which can do amazing things like transform a ham sandwich into, say, blood cells or ear cells. What alchemy is that? Can you imagine trying to do that consciously? It gives you some idea of the relative intelligences and abilities of the conscious self and the subconscious. The problem with the subconscious, though, is that it is quite computer-like. It is by definition subconscious and thus cannot be used to give conscious consideration about whether what it has as beliefs, directives and algorithms, things conditioned and formed in the past are either A, true, or B, appropriate in changed circs. Life in Perpetual Beta was a film for techies. However, the title can serve our purposes well if we amend it to The Human Being as Perpetual Beta. Today, Mike version 2023.1.10 is writing. Tomorrow will be a slightly different amended beta, version 2023.1.11, and so forth. Many of the changes in release are driven by the subconscious's invisible processes, but on a good day, maybe the thing that I experience as me makes an effort to amend tomorrow's release. So for example, the usual January resolution to drink less definitely affected this month's .2.3 and .4 releases, if not the .5.6 and .7 releases, where unaccountably, the subconscious seems to have deleted my patch. There's a book called Working on Yourself Doesn't Work. However, working on yourself does work, but just to a limited degree, as it uses willpower, which is finite. You can decide in your New Year's resolutions to be nicer to your mum, eat cabbage and go to bed early. You just can't decide to change 101 things. Even then, the reversion to the mean, to the centre of gravity of your neural nets, is a strong force. But this whole process of psychological transformation is pretty glacial. So at this point, let's leap from stalactite to stalactite and consider existential awakening, one benefit of which is that, in a sense, it seems to lead to one having more awareness, more consciousness, and the more of that you have, the more able you will be in real time to increasingly spot the gap between reactivity, where it's your program which determines your reaction, and response, where you get to use a bit of free will and not act like a complete automaton. But before we move on, just to wrap up the psychological awakening section, let's consider a Gedanken. One morning, you're visited by a time traveller from over half a billion years in the future. You are to him as simple and transparent as the very first multicellular organisms are to us, which appeared about that long ago in the past. If you ask him what percentage of things that you believe to be true are actually true, what do you think he might say? If you ask him what percentage of your subconscious algorithms that evolved in the past are optimally suited to your life today and your life tomorrow, what do you think he would say? 
what percentage of all the things that you believe to be impossible would he say are actually impossible? Chapter 3. The Wasteland and the Grail. The ancient Greeks believed in the power of mythos as well as logos. In our left-brained world, the power of mythos has been all but lost, including, sadly, in literature departments of universities, who all too often, rather than deriving from literature deeper truths about life, project onto literature the current fashionable takes. Post-structuralism back in my day at Cantab, and decolonisation in my daughters. Outside the ivory towers, look at the sheer infertility of creative output in major movies, all too often simply woke remakes. Rocky 18 and the iPhone 18 are just photocopies of photocopies of photocopies, with plenty of propaganda to hypnotise the consumer into buying. Look at the ugliness of the built environment. A century ago, T.S. Eliot published The Wasteland, a key modernist poem, bemoaning the meaninglessness of culture. The wasteland of the title is a Celtic motif that reflects the barrenness of a land whose infertility mirrors that of its wounded king. The last of the grail keepers in the Arthurian lineage was the fisher king who had been wounded and whose infertility was mirrored in his land. The grail itself is also a Celtic motif which has possible origins in Greek and Roman myths of horns of plenty or magic life restoring cauldrons. In Wagner's Parsifal, which was a rewrite of von Eschenbach's 13th century Christianised rewrite of the Celtic tale, Parsifal, i.e. Arthur's knight Percival, searches for the healing grail. Parsifal is an archetypally innocent hero who needs to undertake a quest and return with salvation. His painful journey is an archetypal hero's journey of challenges leading to spiritual awareness and the ability to return with, mixing traditions, gift-bestowing hands in the phrase of the Zen ox-herding pictures and let us not think that heroes are merely figments of legends. There are many right now, of whom I check in most with Robert Malone, who are fighting very evil and powerful dragons with regards to the continued mass injections of the very damaging spike protein. But back to the grail. We are living in a wasteland right now. Low fertility has also been a symptom of most all European nations for quite some time. We have super low fertility in films and the general production of anything meaningful or beautiful. We are like Spengler's ageing organism of a culture, unable to produce fresh green growth, leaves or fruit. Where did the infertility arise from? Even if the cyclical history perspective is correct, there's still the question of the rate of rise and fall and what causes ageing to begin. After all, the lifetime of different types of plant stretches from mere months to centuries. How far do we want to go back in looking for the genetic mutation which, even if it gave short-term gains, condemned us in the longer term? As Spengler sees Western man as Faustian man, at some point we, like Faust, did a deal with the devil for power which had condemned ourselves to ultimate servitude to him. To me, the major mutation in the genetic code of European civilization came in the early 17th century. The Inquisition forced Galileo to recant his clearly preposterous notion that the sun is at the centre of the solar system. A little more burning of heretics of the state, and it was a more politically than philosophically motivated schisming of the European investigation of reality into two separate fields to keep warring tanks apart, two fields which have yet to be reunited in the Western mind. The domain of spirit belonged to the church, the domain of matter belonged to the scientists. Sadly, the church hardly was into the systematic and empirical examination of the nature of spirit, i.e. consciousness, unlike the prior multiplicity of native traditions and techniques of consciousness, transformation and healing, which it obliterated. Shamans only prosper if their approaches work, and in the open marketplace there's always the next village's shaman who might do a better job. Fast forward, 
and even an insider as venerable as the recently departed American Trappist monk, Father Thomas Keating, said that we, i.e. European civilization, have been living through centuries of spiritual desert. Science was ultra-devolved back in the day, that is, until modern state centralism, via research funding, and in key areas, corporatism and corruption, meant that science became over-centralized, and it became the new dogmatic church it had overthrown in the realm of matter centuries earlier. And thus, we have the conquest of abundance of scientists looking at things from different perspectives. Look how marginalised the likes of Rupert Sheldrake has been. As the centuries passed, science made more and more progress creating technologies that actually did useful things, and also happened to create better weapons, which gave a quotes competitive advantage, unquotes, compared to other parts of the world. Our ancestors thousands of years ago were well aware of the trickster nature of technology, that man hastens to it all too easily, being more full of curiosity than wisdom, and that technology comes to us from not entirely benevolent sources. They saw technology as powerful, but as something of a deceptive trick, always more dangerous than it first appeared, and given to us by beings of at best mixed motivations. Ancient Greeks described Hephaestus and his metal robots, who also created Pandora and her box of ills. The Old Testament has Cain, the murderous brother, and his lineage creating cities and technology. Adam and Eve, of course, needing no technology. In the Book of Enoch, man is taught technology such as metallurgy by demons and fallen angels. In Northern European mythology, dwarfs, those who mine beneath the earth and produce technology, often have a dual-edged nature, powerful but not always to be trusted. In our case, the external mischief is the globalist technocratic evil we see. Internally, it is this left-brainism, rationalised, bureaucratised, atomised, reified mentality, in a word, disenchanted, and on that word, look at the appalling levels of mental, emotional illness in our society. Spengler said a century ago, All things organic are dying in the grip of organisation. The civilization itself has become a machine. Elul wrote well over half a century ago, Enclosed within his artificial creation, man finds that there is no exit, that he cannot pierce the shell of technology again to find the ancient milieu to which he was adapted for hundreds of thousands of years. No one knows where we are going. The aim of life has been forgotten. The end has been left behind. Man has set out at tremendous speed to go nowhere. Our civilization is first and foremost a civilization of means. In the reality of modern life, the means, it would seem, are more important than the ends. Or to put it another way, man takes a drink, drink takes a drink, drink takes a man and makes him a drunk. Man makes machines, machines make machines, machines take man and make him a machine. And who'd have guessed it, eh? Man being a machine doesn't make him happy. I bet the romantic poets would never have spotted that. I bet the hippies weren't onto this one. Oh, no, wait, hang on. So, back to the Grail King. He was injured a long time ago. I'm not sure there's much hope for him. However, us innocent youths can for sure partake upon the quest for the Grail to re-enchant and heal our lives. Chapter 4. Existential Awakening A notable Zen saying is, not knowing is the start of all wisdom. The Cloud of Unknowing is a 14th century English Christian mystical text and has the same angle. The secret's in the title. Not knowing enables us to move beyond the realms of familiar and easy to study. A well-known Sufi tale. Someone saw Mullah Nasruddin searching for something on the ground. What have you lost, Mullah? he asked. My keys, said the Mullah. So they both went down on their hands and knees and looked for it. After a time, the other man asked, 
Where exactly did you drop it? In my own house. Then why are you looking here? There's more light here than inside my own house. Chomsky's version talks about science. I'm not sure in what context, but for sure it could relate to science's so-called investigation in consciousness. Actually, by definition, it's investigation into physical correlates of consciousness. Science is a bit like the joke about the drunk who's looking under a lamppost for a key he's lost on the other side of the street, because that's where the light is. It has no other choice. But before leaping from stalagmite to stalactite, from left to right brain, from knowing to not knowing, from being a human doing, including doing knowing, to being a human being, one final idea for the rational mind. Consciousness, awareness, spirit, soul, whatever word takes your fancy, is that aspect of you that is most central to your experience of being alive, that was there when you were born and will be there when you die. And it's not a thing back to dereification, it's a sense of knowing a process that only ceases during deep sleep. At our most fundamental, we are processes of knowing. In my experience of various practices over time, consciousness has a kind of wave-particle duality. Don't ask you to believe me for a second, I'm simply remaining my experience over a couple of decades of all sorts of weird and wonderful practices. Most people, most of the time, experience themselves as particles, trapped in their own heads, in their own goldfish bowl, listening to Radio Them, playing the same tunes and thinking the same thoughts over and over again. The relaxation of this contraction of spirit is a factor in most spiritual practices. In some, especially entheogenic, it is perhaps more like an explosion of spirit. Either way, there is a procedure which gradually or rapidly moves away from your consciousness, your spirit, being experienced as a particle. Your spirit seems to be spread over a wider area or a wider range of frequencies, to take your radio analogy, which unsurprisingly enables you to perceive more. Vice versa, it is this default network sense of experiencing oneself as a tightly bound particle, a radio receiver tuned into one narrow, narrow frequency, which means that many insist there are no quotes, non-normal phenomena, as they are sometimes called. But non-normal is just a Western modern take. Plenty of cultures consider being so isolated and closed in one's mind as a real form of mental illness. Funnily enough, conventional Western wisdom is the opposite. As a betting man, you'd, I guess, have to wonder who had superior mental health. Modern man, literally trapped listening to his own thoughts all the time, or ancients, whose radios could tune into a universe of mystery and enchantment. Answers on a postcard. However, that's only one aspect. The core spiritual path points not to what can be perceived, a process in passing which will never terminate, but to a meta-awareness of awareness, to being able to drill down to the bedrock of existing, this pure knowing, this pure being, perception of perceiving, this simply being, this empty slate, although, note our bene, empty in the oriental sense of plenum void, the source of all, not empty void, or 1001 labels, all of which are fingers pointing at the moon. The matrix, Plato's cave, is not constructed externally, it is constructed by you in your head, by the default adult neural net, one that has been conditioned since childhood not to perceive anything, not in consensus reality, and has been conditioned to look outwards, not inwards, for the nature of reality. You, or rather that tiny bit of you that is conscious, and the huge bit of you that is subconscious, are creating the movie, the Matrix movie, the Plato's Cave movie, in the goldfish bowl. As Gon Jens said, your focus determines your reality. But onto some simple tricks that might be able to give you a glimpse of leaping from stalagmite, 
stalactite across the corpus callosum to knowing being, not thinking. Letting it all stop for a moment is one of the simplest things that you can do. Just like walking across the room or going for a pee, you just do them. In this regard, if you aren't driving right now, just stop thinking for a couple of seconds and just be. Any success? Another simple practice to try is trying to do what I'm about to say, even if you logically know the answer is no. We're not in the realm of knowing right answers here. We're in the realm of learning to walk, to ride a bike, to simply be. Okay, so try this one even just for a few seconds. Follow my instructions to the letter. It's an exercise in listening, in attempting to hear. The exercise is, can you try to hear those distant ships? Listen. Strain your ears, hear as much as you can. Can you hear the distant ships? Perhaps, if you did the exercise well, you had a sense of presence, of spaciousness, as your CPU was 100% usage on actually listening for a short term, not allowing any CPU spare for thinking. There's a similar exercise using vision. Once again, it's a do this exercise. Do this. Imagine for a few seconds, you're just a pair of eyeballs floating in the air. Look around, you're just eyeballs. Imagine being just eyeballs. Look. If you've got some sense of not knowing, of simply being, then it's an example of your ego, that your ego is not your deepest self. If I stop thinking, there is not Mike, there's just knowing. Of course, when I start thinking about who am I or who's not thinking, the left brain comes back online with its standard answers. It's not a question of trying ultimately to achieve any state of mind. It's more that over time, the more familiar one gets with being, with simply being as well as doing, the more that even doing becomes infused with a spacious quality. Your existence begins to feel less and less like a tangled knot, a compressed particle, and more and more relaxed and open. Anyway, small tricks aside, I vividly recall the first time I noticed I wasn't thinking. It lasted a few seconds and I thought, blimey, that's boring as if for all my life I've been addicted to watching some tap dancer on stage to entertain the perceiving part of me and promptly had fallen asleep when he wasn't there. In terms of simply being investigating this more, Eckhart Tolle is well known and has an infinite number of talks on YouTube where he clearly explains and conveys the essence of pure beingness, pure awareness and the benefits of recognising that. More formally, in the non-dual Advaita tradition, Rupert Spira, S-P-I-R-A, has a channel and has been teaching non-duality for a long time. Beyond that, buyer beware, there are a ton of non-dual teachers out there who have had some degree of realisation and then teach. In Zen, there was a protocol that you have to have a 10-year period between any realisation and then teaching about it. Wise precautions in a less hurried and egotistic age. Non-dual in this context comes from the Sanskrit adva, meaning not to. Poetically, not to involves seeing your wave it's not isolated from, but inseparable from, the ocean of which it is made. That Atman, the deep self in the system, and Brahman, the ocean, the field of consciousness in physics terms, are one, not two. In Taoism, merging with the Tao is also an experience of the non-dual nature of reality, as is Augustine's Via Negativa to God, in which tradition the cloud of unknowing was situated. Fact packetly, whatever you can experience is not God, the Tao, or Nirvana, so keep disregarding everything you perceive, and then what is left must be the most fundamental level of reality qua experience. 
neither thing nor phenomena, but the nominal ground of beingness. Back to the classical origins of the idea of the grail, which all along was inside us, and indeed is our deepest sense of self, well below ego, finding it is existentially evolutionary or revolutionary, perhaps changing you slowly, perhaps changing you quickly. All sorts of traditions have all sorts of dogmas around this, as by definition all traditions are conceptualised and communicated in left-brain terms. Either you get the full Monty, or pretty full Monty, how would I be able to tell, of an Eckhart Tolle in one go, going to bed one night incredibly depressed and waking up the next day in an utterly different state of existence, or, as is perhaps more common, one gets short glimpses, slightly longer glimpses, and the process slowly unfolds under its own momentum. Either way, contact with the Grail re-enchants and slowly starts to dissolve disenchantment, which starts to disappear like a bad dream awoken from, like a mist on sunny morning. One can start to regain a sense of the sacred, and I use that word poetically, the wow factor of a clear night sky, and the stars is sacred in my usage of the word. Chapter 5. A Magical New World Fortunately for us all, you don't have to be, as yet, sitting on a lotus blossom in the sky to be able to get some value out of this section. You can just be open-minded about what you haven't experienced and have an idea that maybe it might work or maybe it might not. I for sure won't recommend anything, no matter where it is on the mundane to weird and wonderful spectrum, that I haven't found to work for myself and my family. Overall, as Hamlet said, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. One of the things everyone learns the hard way when embracing ancient technologies of transformation is to keep one's mouth shut. The hard way is that time and time again one shares incredibly personal experiences with someone still on the revelation, and what can have been deeply meaningful to you gets dismissed as woo-woo, placebo, you've gone nuts, you must be mistaken or complete coincidence. People's belief systems have their own immune systems which attack anything which might upset the harmony and integrity of their belief system. The more closed-minded a person is, the more vicious the attack. The more open-minded, the more it fades away to shrugging shoulders. You may have noticed this big time in the scandemic. Those of you who research the actual IFR of C19, or efficacy injections, or masks, etc., and tried sharing these researches with a family member, would have encountered this. The core belief that was most threatened, and needed most guarding for many, was the idea that the nanny state is here to look after us. Conventional wisdom, manufactured, bought and sold, has always got a phrase to protect itself. Conspiracy theory, anti-vaxxer, which sound way ruder than intelligent individual capable of researching and thinking for themselves. And in the case of healing methods, which were used by thousands of your ancestors, before Rockefeller redefined medicine, simply cutting, drugging or talking, and everything else became alternative to woo-woo. And for 40 years, to be fair, I'd have been totally in that anti-woo-woo camp. I absolutely wouldn't have put it this way. But implicitly, I acted as if my school physics textbook was the be-all and end-all of the metaphysics of existence, and that anyone with woo-woo positions was simply deluding themselves, or frankly, not bright enough to understand physics. And also, an innate line in the code from centuries ago that it's either science or religion, and there was no way for me it was going to be religion. After all, those medieval popes, you know. Of course, I would have vehemently denied that those positions were positions rather than the truth, and it might be an ungenerous caricature, but it's reflective enough of the subconscious algorithms that are running in me and run in many others. The other angle which comes as a shock is when you stop believing that other people are all lying or deceiving themselves. Again, I would have denied this, but staying on the Western slash modern reservation, in essence, depended on it. Now I simply take people's accounts of their experience as 
their accounts of their experience. I don't need to judge. I don't need to decide whether they are or aren't deluding themselves. I learned a useful lesson very early on. In going to a local Tai Chi class in Maida Vale, I was unfortunately thrown through the air by the instructor and landed using my head to cushion the blow of falling onto a concrete floor. The kind of lesson one doesn't forget. Cue a trip to hospital, a week off work and a scar to this day. Fortunately, my head being pretty empty, life went on. And for those of you feeling sceptical about this episode, I might suggest the helpful belief. Ah, that's why he thinks crazy things. He had a blow to the head a long time ago. But the lesson was clear. Always go to the top, in my case, when learning anything. Ancient tools came back in the day culturally embedded, with safeguards precisely as there always are dangerous, even as above at a local Tai Chi class, which is pretty unwoo-woo. Buyer beware. Don't just shoot off to say the latest ayahuasca retreat that's well marketed. I happened to see recently someone died on one. A buddy of mine also got far worse than a bump on the head when quotes learning, unquotes, from a breathing control for healing school and he died of a heart attack, which wasn't coincidental. Generally, of course, the way, way more likely error rather than ending up dead is that you just blow lots of money on very little. But this comes back to researching well, just as if you research a holiday hotel. There is no cause for alarm. The reason I mention the above is simply that there is this mode of phase shift of belief network where people suddenly completely flip to the other side. You know, the atheist who suddenly finds God and believes every word of the Bible or vice versa. The utter sceptic who suddenly out of desperation decides to try a woo-woo healer and then almost invariably is annoyed when one session doesn't cure them. It's not bloody magic, you know. Okay, that all having been said, it would be far easier for me to keep my mouth shut and not give many of you just cause to think I'm even more crazy than you did before. However, some seeds scattered might land on fertile ground, or ground which is not fertile today, but which might be tomorrow. And if human suffering is decreased in the process, then there will have been some value. Time is shooting by, so I'll just run through some things that I have found useful healing approaches. I do not believe anything is a cure-all. All tools can help or not help in different circumstances. In many cases, it's less about the tool itself, though some well-known ones are pretty weak, than the practitioner's or your facility with it. For typology, and to get out of our Western mindset, I use a basic Taoist model of what man is. The simplest model is man is heaven and earth in unity, which like, like most Chinese texts, is poetic for man, you, me, being unity of the insubstantial heaven and substantial. You are made of the substantial matter, but you're also made of non-material things like hopes, dreams and desires. Moving up one stage, a three-factor Taoist model of man, as man comprised of Jing Qi Shen, Roughly speaking, matter, energy, and art slash mind slash consciousness, impossible to translate. Nor is this model mere thinky-thinky stuff or the blah blahness of, say, Western philosophy or dogmas of religion. The Chinese mentality is infinitely more practical and existential. You are not deemed to have any understanding of, say, qi, unless you can use it to heal or to fight successfully. Taoist internal alchemy is all about the tangible transformation of jing into qi into shen, matter into energy into spirit which takes much painstaking practice and achievement, which are well above my pay grade. Anyway, healing techniques. Section 1, Jing. Some material methods I found very powerful. 1, green smoothies. Whenever, which is not enough to be honest, I try a month of green smoothies, I always feel so much better at the end. I saw a couple of films yonks ago about green smoothie retreats, where the intense nutritional input cured people of all sorts of ailments and got them off all kinds of medicinal drugs. Do research yourself first, especially the necessary rotation of greens. Two, sauerkraut and bone broth. Ideally homemade, but buy best quality otherwise. 
and live in the case of sauerkraut. Our ancestors knew best that food is the best medicine. Funnily enough, both Bridget and I learned about making sauerkraut and bone broth from the Chinese acupuncturist, a qi energy method, of course. I was curious about how acupuncture worked. But in the end, I found that if I didn't OD on social media, I didn't need someone sticking needles in me, which was painful at times. So we left the needles and stuck with the sauerkraut and bone broth. Three, TRE is awesome. Trauma relief exercises invented by David Bocelli, which have been used all over the world for everything from major, major capital T traumas in war zones to everyday stress relief. Essentially, they involve some warm-up exercises to overstress the legs, which then induce shakes in the psoas muscle, which stores much tension and stuck emotional energy. Four, finally, grounding or earthing. To this day, I use an earthing mouse mat, which I find really helps making being at the computer so much less tiring. I tried earthing sheets before, and they were good, although they didn't last well when washed. Invented by Clint Ober, a former cable TV installer who was in chronic pain, and one day realised that people, as they wear plastic shoes and walk on hard substances, were not earthed, unlike all other animals, other than house pets who can get too little grounding too. There were some awesome films, but long story short, he cured himself and countless others. Being directly connected to Mother Earth has healed some pretty dire things. You can use earthing patches on specific injuries, and definitely helps one to heal faster. Most modern chronic health conditions are inflammatory. Metaphorically, our immune systems were designed to create fires in a rainy climate, raining electrons, negative ions are good for you, but modern man lives out, out of the rain of electrons from the negatively charged earth, and therefore is excessively inflamed. Section 2. Qi. Energy methods. About Qi, it's also useful to know, in translating back into English, the aphorism that emotion is energy in motion. After all, you know when you're angry that energy rises, that when you're depressed it sinks and won't rise, that when you're sad you feel it in the heart, and so forth. First, Qigong. Exercises in increase in cultivation of energy and health. Much Qigong is low level, operating purely as a system of relaxing the Jing, the body. A level above that, you can get to Qigong as actually calming and smoothing the Qi, your feelings, your emotions, your energies. And a level above that as calming the Shen, heart, mind, soul, spirit. Anyone interested in the real McCoy should check out Damo Mitchell, one of the many masters I've trained with, but one who is totally Western and open and amazingly well informed about Taoist Chinese energy methods, having written many textbooks at a precociously early age. Two, as I wasn't keen on being needled myself, there are Western systems which utilise tapping on acupuncture points worth looking at. Both Bridget and I use EFT, emotional freedom technique, now and then for tactical uses. Invented yonks ago by Gary Craig, it has had huge success, but is best done by working on removing the sting of painful old memories. His work on Vietnam vets is super impressive. Painful memory doesn't begin to cover it, although we tend to use it for tactical reasons. Three, my latest adventure is with Bradley Nelson's Emotion Code slash Body Code, which has an astonishing 10,000 practitioners worldwide. I'm still just in the early stages of practicing with it, but it seems pretty awesome to me. One can literally learn it off YouTube, well, one can if one's sort of open-minded and able to relax the body enough in order to do the muscle testing. Otherwise, you might need training. A particular interest to all is this discovery of simple ways to heal the heart wall. Trapped emotions, which in passing is pretty much just Western speak for most all qi blockages in Chinese, which simply put is the reason for illness in Chinese medicine. The heart wall is constructed or added to at times of huge emotional stress to protect the heart, qua centre of feeling, but the remaining in place thereafter causes a life less lived. Bradley says that almost all cases of depression involve a heart wall, that isolated feeling all alone of depression, 
and the tales of how people's lives, especially love lives, have changed when heart walls come down are awesome. The tales of animal healings by this method are also awesome and change one's views about reality. The release of heart wall emotions is palpable and in a school of the future, children will be taught how to do it themselves. But the uses are much wider. Essentially, it's a technique for being able to read or write into the subconscious. And you could use it, for example, to remove blockages or internal code holding, holding you back with respect to career success, love life, anything really. Four, essential oils. We've dabbled in these and got nice scents, but not that much more. I cleared a very annoying wart eventually with oregano oil. Otherwise, I get the impression that maybe it would be best if one knew what one was doing. <laughs> Fancy that. That having been said, we always take Lemon House's sacred oil with us on holiday, a blend super useful at staving off colds, ailments, and helping repair injuries. Five, the most woo-woo-y perhaps by far is that crystals do have an effect on the energy system. I should say at this point that there is totally a question of how subtle one's perception is here. Most people's perception isn't subtle, and so they feel nothing. Mine wasn't subtle in the slightest, vice versa, I went to a boys' school. It was decades until Qigong practice that I developed even marginally wider perception. I vividly recall one day walking past the oven in the kitchen and feeling residual heat from it with my hand as I walked past. I was amazed that I'd never noticed it before and realised it was much less about acquiring some new superpower and much more about the fact that roughly every input that the body energy mind systems get doesn't make it to the conscious mind with its very low bandwidth that my awareness or bandwidth had slightly increased. In a similar way, it was only very recently that I could detect any kind of vibe from crystals, or say the energy of a strong tree, and it's still a bit variable or subtle. That having been said, both Bridget and I experimented with crystals from a former auctioneer chap in Spain called Mark Bajerski, in case you're interested, and found that wearing certain types of crystal for a few hours, gently lent one, for, for example, in the direction of feeling more calm or in the direction of focusing more on work, etc. Top tip here is that rose quartz crystal definitely helps sleep, although in a relatively subtle way, 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 way different from sleeping tablets. Just if, if you buy one, make sure you cleanse it first. Section three, Shen methods, heart, mind, spirit. I think it's nigh on impossible to pick out some key recommendations here, as everything you do affects your mind or spirit, and there are infinite approaches out there. Being in a cathedral for choral singing or praying affects the heart, mind, spirit. Doing qigong affects the heart, mind, spirit. Doing Native American journey, sweat lodges, vision quests affects the heart, mind, spirit. Doing traditional entheogenic practices with shamans around the world affects the heart, mind, spirit. Plus, it's also subjective. It's much more about what affects improves your heart, mind, spirit than any kind of topology of recommendations. Just to highlight three thoughts about Shen training development. One, I won't dive into the whole world of meditation, which is the obvious Shen method. There are so many types with so many objectives and so many techniques. But I find it as unhelpful a word as sport. If you were to tell me you do sport, I would know that you use your body, but that's about all. I know you can use it in many ways for many types of sport. Ditto meditation. I know you're using your mind, but for what and to what purpose I do not know. It is noteworthy that in the Buddha's eightfold path to transform consciousness, the Pali word is bhavana, which actually translates as mental cultivation, which is a superset of meditation. This genuinely missed distinction is what causes retreat drunkies to have such a problem in shifting between retreats and the real world. But they, or their teacher, have created a false duality. You can watch the mind at any time. You can be mindful of running madly to avoid missing the train. The training of awareness is not just something for when your bottom is on a cushion. A second thought about Shen training 
the challenges of tradition. The problem isn't so much cultural appropriation as such, as that's how the family of man has learned forever. The problem is doing it badly and making a mockery of the tradition. Furthermore, whether one is, say, talking about Buddhism or Tai Chi, recall my point about anti-reification. There is no such thing as Buddhism or Tai Chi. They are labels referring to an immensely complex phenomena of constant flux and change over time. There's never been a fixed one thing. Noise will always be introduced into a system and occasionally new signals from new real practitioners. Three, okay, probably the most woo-woo comment of the podcast in terms of mind training, mind or spirit training. Spirit or entity possession is for real. There was a really interesting psychiatrist whose name I forgot. He was on the Delling Pod and Sheep Farm podcast in the first year of the Elite's Revolution. He'd worked in the worst mental hospitals and prisons in America with the most intractable patients. Not a job to volunteer for. Anyway, he started to manage to improve the condition of some of his paranoid schizophrenics by the novel approach of listening to what they said about hearing voices and taking them seriously rather than just following the textbook. Of course, he got himself into a pile of trouble with the powers that be as going off the reservation ain't allowed. I happen to see, by the way, that there's even an app these days, Easy Entity Release, which gets 4.1 stars on the Apple Store. It appears, by the way, to use the term entity in a very wide sense including one's own thoughts, but does seem to include the more capital E entity. A simple comment on this one is that if this civilization ever, apart from the modern one, has A, believed in this phenomenon, B, had methods to deal with it, by the way, most a zillion times less melodramatic than modern movie makers portray, which C, led to huge improvements in folks' anguish and mental health. Let's wrap up this section. The end of the podcast is nine. Long story short, there are an infinite number of transformational tools out there for body, energy, mind and heart, if you want to add that. I found immensely useful tools and practices that I would have, quotes, known, unquotes, were complete nonsense some 20 years ago. But then, clearly, I'm a slow learner. I hope I've nudged you into lopping off a decade or two in your investigation of what works to positively transform your experience of your body, of your energy, of your minds, of your emotions, of your hearts, of your thoughts, beliefs, and to separate it out merely poetically, your deepest soul, whatever that might be. The magical nature of the 21st century is extraordinary. There is so much at our fingertips than literally in our pocket. Nature often produces an antidote next to a poison. If we stop drinking the poison and choose to imbibe the antidote, our experience of life can be transformed. If you stop listening to dark sirens who keep you in fear and staring at them and choose the opposite, there is indeed a whole world of love, light and healing out there, ripe for the taking. To give a couple of stories about how unique and wonderful this 21st century world is with regards to the possible upgrade to all elements of your body and soul, Ajahn Zamedo is the longest-serving Western monk having ordained in 1966. In the 1950s, he was at UC Berkeley in the real good old days when California was near paradise on Earth. And as he says, there were then next to no books on Buddhism at all. Ditto, in the 1970s, in my local library, there was nothing on any transformational arts of body, energy or mind. As recently as about 2011, I read Opening the Dragon Gate, The Making of a Modern Taoist Wizard, translated by Thomas Cleary, about Wang Li Ping, the 18th generation successor of Longmen Pai, the Dragon Gate Taoist sect. I read the tale literally not knowing how much was fiction and how much was fact. Indeed, most of it seemed to be fiction. But fast forward to 2021, and both Bridget and I were learning Longmen Pai Ne Gung, Internal Alchemy Methods, an online course taught by Damon Mitchell. So my experience of this went from something that was most likely a fairy tale, 
an absolutely unverifiable one way or another, to being taught online in a decade. Extraordinary. In the same way this summer, I watched many YouTubers about NDEs, near-death experiences. There are just so many people coming out of the woodwork right now and sharing their incredible experiences. I totally recommend Anthony Chain's channel, by the way, C-H-E-N-E, amazing production values. Awesome tales of insight, lives changed, healing some very late stage cancer and returning with special powers. Inconceivable in the past, other than perhaps the odd landmark book like Raymond Moody's. Overall, I believe there is a huge shift in consciousness going on right now. The old world is dying in front of our eyes. However, a new world is arising and there are a phenomenal number of green shoots growing for those who will look and find. Transformation, the phase shift in consciousness, is getting so much easier to do. Centuries ago, monks meditated and prayed for a lifetime to get small degrees of realisation, which are way easier today. There's definitely not just a hundredth monkey, but a hundred thousandth monkey effect going on. The likes of Eckhart Tolle, who has been teaching for about 25 years, are seeing more and more people who have begun spiritual awakening from their being held captive, as it were, by the ego and algorithms, and who can transcend and include all the thinky-thinky, believey-believey stuff and rest in presence awareness. As a final tale, I watched just last night clips from the film Power of Chi, spelt QI, starring Adam Meisner, who Damo Mitchell rates as the best Tai Chi practitioner he's ever met. And Damo is super awesome himself, has met countless masters. Briefly, Tai Chi is an internal martial art. Back in the day, it was seen as being a gentle dance, somewhat new agey. A little later, when I studied in the 1980s, it was possible to learn it as a martial art, which I did from Dan Doherty, former Hong Kong police and Southeast Asian open martial arts champion. This involved ancient Chinese rituals to be performed before being admitted to the non-public inside-the-door training. All good stuff, albeit quite external in style, external martial arts being all about leverage and power. Internal martial arts choose the opposite, as in my Jamjong Da Cheng Chuan lineage. Online, as long as it's been online, most martial arts, including Joe Rogan, are at best politely sniffy and generally outright dismissive of any allegedly woo-woo internal martial arts fighting style. But check out some short clips of The Power of Chi with Morgan Freeman and you'll see the relatively small Adam Meisner controlling and firing away from himself the world's strongest man, NBAers, Olympic fencers, with no external force and sometimes just a finger or two. Even I was amazed and I've seen quite a lot of this stuff. Finally, one of the most awesome examples of the amazing new world which is arising is R.J. Spiner, S-P-I-N-A. An absolutely phenomenal story. You've got to check it out. He completely healed himself using the power of his mind and video documented his journey from complete paralysis and multiple organ failure. Doctors told him he would never walk again and would probably die. He told them that no, he would walk in 90 days and he managed it. Not only that, but he teaches this system and other people have used it for radical health transformations too. Okay, folks, that's more than enough for me. And I look forward to returning to Terra Firma for the rest of the year, talking about fintech. Don't choose fear and control. Choose the opposite. Choose love and light. Live long and prosper. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We 
could sit in a bender all day, watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn, watching a happy moon rise, watching a happy moon rise. Watch the fire light dance with me. 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 Watch the